Jim P and Tiawamutu says, three things I'm grateful for, the roof over my head, the hottest in my bed, the Labrador on guard sleeping outside my bedroom door. He then sends a uh, postscript, uh, sorry, I meant hottie in bed, (laughs) a.k.a. hot water bottle. Good on you, Jim. I hope you're nice and snugly warm. Well done. Okay, it's time now to welcome in Colin Peacock with uh, Midweek Media Watch. Kia ora, Colin. Kia ora, Mark. I'm nice and warm here in the Wellington studio as well. <laughs> you, got your outdoors. you got your hottie with you, have you? Uh, I will later tonight when I <laughs> climb into bed, but I'm not there yet. You're keeping me up. Good on you, man. Well, we'll, we'll keep it uh, short and sweet. Here we go. But it's a big one tonight, really, isn't it? RNZ's review of inappropriate editing has been released. And just remind us what it was all about once again. Yes, to recap, it was back in early June that it emerged that international news agency Wire Stories had been sub-edited by a staff member. Initially, it was a sort of pro-Russia type of concepts and a bit of uh, what you might call loaded language was inserted in stories relating to the war in Ukraine. These got spotted by RNZ website users overseas. Uh, At the time, once this had been highlighted, um, Chief Executive Paul Thompson was interviewed on... uh, RNZ's Nine to Noon called the the, the stories pro-Kremlin garbage, uh, which created a few headlines, and RNZ tightened up its editorial checks at that point, stood down uh, the journalist who had um, been making these edits, who had been working remotely, and uh, the, this journalist later resigned and then told Checkpoint uh, some days later uh, that, in fact, he'd been editing reports like this uh, in that way, he said, for about five years, and that no one had ever uh, queried it or, or told him to stop. RNZ then ordered stories uh, that had been um, edited by this particular staff member and they counted up in the end over a period of weeks 49 that they deemed had been inappropriately edited. Now interestingly the expert panel that returned their report uh, today uh, said they disagreed with some of these they had necessarily the edits themselves were inappropriate you know, and it wasn't just about Russia and Ukraine. Some of these were perspectives on a range of international conflicts or situations. Uh, but anyhow, RNZ decided uh, a panel of uh, external export, uh, experts with legal and journalistic expertise would look at this, um, work out how bad this really was, how RNZ could and should have responded, uh, what they should change and, and how they should respond. So how big was the problem in the end, uh, according to the panel? Well, the panel found uh, that there was just the one staff member who'd breached editorial standards in this way um, on on these overseas stories. Uh, but they said they accepted the person responsible for the inappropriate editing, and these are the panel's words in the report, genuinely believed he was acting appropriately to provide balance and accuracy and wasn't motivated by any desire to introduce misinformation, disinformation or propaganda. Uh, but they say, despite that, And again, in the panel's words, inappropriate editing of this type uh, constitutes a serious breach of trust and damaged RNZ's reputation for accurate and balanced journalism. But I think at that point, I mean, one thing I think it was worth pointing out, well, that's that's the interpretation the panel reached. The journalist in question should have known, I believe, that it was wrong to change the copy of these international Reuters journalists, specifically the one that was spotted in the first instance was by the Moscow Bureau of Reuters. So to make... To make substantial edits that change the nature of the, the story and the, and the very careful language that a news agency like Reuters would use uh, in you know contested issues and stories like the Russia-Ukraine war, you know I believe is is not something that a journalist acting um, with the the best interests of journalism at heart 
would have done. But um, in its report, the panel found that the overseas part of New Zealand's digital operation wasn't operating to what they were at pains to point out was the very high standards of the rest of RNZ News in these instances. But they did say, look, the overall organisational structure that has existed since 2016 is now unsatisfactory and it separated digital news from the rest of the news team. The same editorial standards applied to both, but under the separated model, they say, the two teams were not aligned in their words. So basically, in the end, it was that single staffer who caused this to happen, but he and he did expose weaknesses in the RNZ system. Yes, yes, that's it. They say uh, some broadcasters who've made this digital transition often started like that on the internet, had the separation because, you know, that was the way it was often managed. But uh, they say plenty of time's gone by now, uh, particularly one of the panel members from the ABC, uh, which might maybe started its digital transition, the public broadcaster in Australia a little sooner, so saying that should have been done earlier. Now, the, the RNZ chair, Jim Mather, Dr. Jim Mather, did concede on Checkpoint today that um, when prompted by the host Lisa Owen that perhaps RNZ let the staff member down by having these systems that weren't necessarily up to the task in terms of oversight. Um, and the report does also say uh, there were gaps in the supervision and training of the busy, poorly resourced digital news team um, Training and editorial standards lacks consistency and effectiveness at RNZ. The training materials we reviewed were basic, they say, and staff hadn't engaged with them. But there's something in the report I didn't see till it was drawn to my attention uh, sometime after it came out. It says here, on two separate occasions, the journalist responsible for the inappropriate editing, sorry, the inappropriate editing, suggested that additional positions be created to assist with the workload and improve the editorial quality of the content. Uh, one was the creation of a, a check sub, a sub-editor who could assist with final oversight and editing before publication. The other was the creation of a specialist world, journalist, uh, world news journalist who could oversee all international coverage. In both cases, one of the key factors cited in not proceeding with these roles, the report says, was a lack of funding and resources. So, you know, that, that is interesting. Mm, that would have sorted it out effectively. It would have been a, a check and balance, if you like. Yeah, possibly, though, as people pointed out, including myself at the time, this copy, these international wire agency stories, you know, come from agencies that have already, you know, mm. sifted out, applied their own rules. So you wouldn't generally expect them mm. to require a lot of oversight supervision uh, if they'd been sub-edited just mm. for matters of, of style and consistency of a, a host broadcaster or a client broadcaster like RNZ. Now, the review panel also had criticism for RNZ's response at the time. Yes, some. Uh, they said the way that the journalist errors were framed at the time by RNZ's leadership contributed to the public alarm and reputational damage, which the panel believes was not helpful in maintaining public trust. And in fact, we, Dr. Jamaida, uh, the RNZ chair, on Checkpoint uh, today did kind of concede that he'd responded rather robustly. Um, he wasn't specific about that, uh, but he seemed to uh, you know, acknowledge that that could have been the case. But they do seize on the comment, uh, that phrase used by Chief Executive Paul Thompson, pro-Kremlin garbage. They say, the panel in their report, the choice of language like that, of pro-Kremlin garbage, 
was unhelpful in maintaining public trust. At the time these comments were made, RNZ was acting on incomplete information as the circumstances and extent of the editing was unknown. Uh, but I mean, by that point, uh, this, this was some time after the editing had, had been revealed, the issue was live. There was a lot of comment about it. Plenty of people had made similar points, possibly even stronger claims and using words like propaganda and so on uh, when commenting on the story. So how much it really could have uh, uh, you know, amplified that impression that um, you know uh, RNZ's public trust was in question. I'm, I'm not really sure. Mm. So, what about the changes that the review panel recommended? Yeah, quite a lot. Uh, some of them are technical. There's a list of I think 21, 22 of them. Uh, but the main one is look, ending that thing we just spoke about there, the digital news side editing their stories in a kind of a silo alongside or separate from uh, the main news operation and also the creation of a new role uh, focused on raising editorial standards of a new job effectively to expand that and that would take on board the training aspects as well as the actual oversight, I imagine, of of what's being published. RNZ's chair, Dr Jim Mather, said in a statement that in fact both of those things are already in progress and I think may have been considered even before uh, this um, this current drama came to light. Uh, other changes they suggest um, that training uh, needs to be more of a focus in general, um, including references to where to refer up up the chain for a ruling. Um, mis and disinformation in editorial policy perhaps needs to be uh, more consistent as well. Uh, they say the editorial policy is strong but needs some changes. Also, in this is an interesting area how RNZ considers balance. Uh, they say policy focuses strongly on the need for balance without going into great detail on, on what it constitutes. And, you know, this is a complicated area. They refer to, for example, due impartiality, uh, determining the weight to be attached to differing perspectives, um, you know, balance that allows for the weight of evidence. You know, this comes up, of course, in arguments about uh, issues like climate change and so on, this in considering all views on perhaps more political matters. So a lot of this to be considered. Uh, and this is something the panel says RNZ uh, needs to get to grips with in that new role that they, they suggest and the RNZ looks like it will introduce is, is probably going to have that as a, a pretty core function. And also they refer to technology, some RNZ systems, editorial systems, getting very old now, very kind of in-house. Uh, that's also been acknowledged within RNZ and uh, you know they'll, they'll need to spend some money on updating some of that and the, the panel certainly sees that as important. Mm. Right, well let's move on to the FIFA Women's World Cup, which has certainly been big news. Um, sadly the football ferns couldn't provide the story everyone was hoping for. <laughs> No, not quite. That was a shame. I, you know, I yeah. went to the match against the Philippines, which ended up being the crucial one here in yes. Wellington. Uh, but that win against Norway first up, that was a big deal. Mm -hmm. And I guess in the end it kind of raised expectations that the football ferns couldn't quite meet. Um, the Heralds had a uh, marvellous headline, I thought, uh, after Sunday's draw, uh, don't dream comma, it's over, uh, with apologies to <laughs> Neil Finn and his mates at Crowded House. But um, perhaps just to cheer people up for a moment, um, we could hear the high point from that game. This is Sky TV's coverage of uh, of the, the big moment against Norway for the Ferns. That's nicely done. Hand is off after it. Wilkinson's in the middle. Wilkinson! New Zealand won. Norway nil. 
Well, of course, that was the only <laughs> time that they found the back of the net. Mind you, no one found the back of their net either. Uh, uh, that no, good. that's true. Switzerland and Norway, higher-ranked teams couldn't score against them. But, yeah, you only put one in the back of the net. Mm. You don't go through. And I guess Australia made that clear the next day, didn't they? They caned Canada 4-0. They were in the same position, had to win, and they managed it. But mm. one interesting thing there was that some people responded badly. That first game against Norway, Sky had taken these sort of international FIFA approved and, and provided coverage that goes out around the world. So that mm. was um he's quite a familiar voice, that English commentator. I don't know his name, but mm. I've heard him a lot of times on football matches that I've watched. But some said, look, hang on a minute, this is a FIFA World Cup, our team in our country, we ought to have a local commentary team. Uh, some were insisting that the man for the job was uh, Jason Pine of NZME. Uh, and Sky listened, and they put Jason along with former Fern uh, Rosie White uh, on commentary duties for um, the following two games. But I guess uh, now that they haven't made the next round, uh, mm. the Ferns are out, so we possibly won't won't hear from them again. But uh, plenty of drama without them. Just tonight, South Africa uh, yes. turned over Italy with a late goal in a seesaw game, and that was after two games where the South Africans had suffered from late goals. So this tournament really has delivered. Portugal almost knocking out the champions USA at Eden yeah. Park the night before. I mean, uh, astonishing stuff. One thing I love about the, the FIFA coverage is that they insist that at the end, the players and coaches will give interviews which are essentially for their home country. So they'll have a local journalist who's here interviewing them in their language, of course, standing in front of the plastic board with mm. about two dozen sponsors' logos. That's also <laughs> mandatory. Uh, but I've picked out a bit of audio here because uh, uh, unless you're a polyglot, you've got no idea what's being said. But I don't think after Portugal came so near uh, that you have to speak Portuguese to understand the disappointment in the voice of this one of their players in the post-match interview. <laughs> Yes, I'd love to hear the Italians tonight after that. I mean, the own goal, gosh almighty, that uh, set them backwards, didn't it? But, um, well, the well me- I bumped into a couple of their supporters yeah. uh, and members of the Spanish team, I guess, had the night off yeah. in the, the hotel next door to RNZ's HQ here in Wellington. And the supporters looked, they looked freezing cold and wet. Uh, it was about, <laughs> but yeah, extremely sad. And uh, two of them, in fact, pulled off their uh, Italian shirts in the lobby and put on dry clothes straight away. So did the media regard the Ferns as a success or, or a failure in the end, do you think? What was the coverage like? Well, that was that was mixed because, of course, they came as close as any New Zealand senior team has ever done to mm. or perhaps the men's side back in 2010 came within a, a point or a goal of, of qualifying too. So as good as that, and that was regarded as a bit of a triumph. But there have been some pretty clear-eyed uh, assessments of the team's shortcomings. And Rosie White, who we mentioned was on Sky's coverage there, she wrote one for staff saying, look, my deep disappointment has turned to pride when I step back and think about it. But she did talk about, uh, as some of the other uh, football writers did, at, uh, also at, at Stuff, incidentally, where they've got uh, two or three football specialists. There were tactical questions to be raised. There's some sh- uh, coaching shortcomings, inability to change the game with substitutions and things. So, um, yes, yeah, some not quite letting the team or the, the coaches off the hook. Mm. But I'm just reminded in all this, uh, when uh, I did um, Midweek Media Watch with you, I guess a fortnight ago, or maybe it was even a full month ago, I'm not mm. sure, but Zoe George of oh, Stuff, yeah. you know, formerly of this parish, mm. came in to talk to you about it. And at that point, all the talk was about, you know, the head of FIFA... 
uh, Infantino being here and telling people to go out and buy a ticket. And locally, uh, the organisers being a bit concerned about the slow sales, you know, the fact that some were having to be given away and across the ditch, stadiums that were bigger were selling out. And it was looking like it might be a bit bad. But then um, a couple of people at that point, like um, the ODT sports editor, Hayden Meekler, said, look, we shouldn't get uptight about this. He said, look, I for one am not shocked that a football game between Japan and Costa Rica has not sold 25,000 tickets in a city the size of a Tokyo suburb, meaning Dunedin. Um, And likewise, Stuff's uh, Dunedin reporter Hamish McNeely said, look, I went to the um, Japan World Cup uh, and South Korea World Cup in 2002 it was, got a, a ticket to the quarterfinal, sort of sought-after game, you'd think. He said the stadium was only two-thirds full until they opened the gates and let in school kids for free. So this happens mm. everywhere. I remember in 1996, I was in England. Uh, they were hosting their first football tournament since they won the World Cup in 1966 because mm. they'd been too unsafe with hooliganism and over the day, hold a tournament in the 30 years that followed that. There were half-empty stadiums to watch. Mm. Uh, the likes of Zidane, Zidane, who ended up being a World Cup winner a couple of years later. So that happens everywhere. Of course it does. And, and look, 21,000 turned up on Monday night in Wellington, uh, mid-winter's night to, to watch the match. You know, so th- they are turning up. And um, and in the atmosphere is, is fantastic by all accounts. Yeah, and I think this is this is coming across in, um, in the coverage and the quality mm. of the games, you know, the dramas. But the Columbia, Germany in Sydney uh, earlier this week, sensational upset, huge stadium mm. full of people. You know, scenes that you get for like the World Cup we just had in, in, in Qatar, the men's game. So all good. But interestingly, not everywhere, even in football-mad countries, has the media been getting on board. And on 9 to noon on Monday, I heard uh, an actual old colleague of mine from my time in England, uh, Daniel Schweimler. He's now a correspondent in Buenos Aires, so football-mad Argentina. Mm. But he told Catherine Ryan that actually uh, the Argentinian media weren't paying much attention to their women's team. It's there. It's mentioned. I suspect if they were doing better, we might be seeing more of that. And when we do see any reference to the women's football, it tends to be the kind of thing that um, trivialises what they've been doing. Team Yilma Rodriguez of the Argentine team, she's appeared in the media simply because it was spotted when she came on the other day that she had a tattoo on her leg, Cristiano Ronaldo, on her leg rather than Leo Messi. She's got Maradona on the other leg, so that's fine. Uh, But she's been forced to defend herself in public why Cristiano Ronaldo and not the great legend of Argentine, male legend of Argentine football, Leo Messi. <laughs> because even then it's still that thing that, you know, I think Zoe mentioned it, it's so much commentary on women's sport is still what they look like rather than what they're doing on the field. So, yes, things, some things not yet changing in the media in other parts of the world, yeah. we'd say. You know, you talk about Daniel, has, has the impact of this tournament, you know, hit home around the world, are others engaged, if you like, in, say, Europe or South America? Yeah, I think so, because uh, they had the European Championship last year, the English one, in their home country, so the coverage was enormous. And there were fears that I think a 32-team tournament, which is in part because of the media, because FIFA wants a big tournament broadcast to lots of places, there will be too many mismatches. Uh, But in the 2019 tournament in France, the last one, there were some thumpings. I think USA beat Thailand something like 13-0, and it was not a good look for the sport. There have been a few 4-5-0 thumpings, but otherwise the gap certainly closed on a lot of these uh, teams. It's it's made it uh, much much more special, I think. And New Zealand being a part of this, I think, um, you know, is all good in, in the end. I mean, the, the winter weather is not a great advert to the, that horizontal rain in Hamilton and uh, so on. But it happened in Perth as well. The Irish played Canada in a horizontal storm, you know, the 
stadium full of people in those horrible, you know, throwaway transparent ponchos. <laughs> so that's not a great look for Australia. So it evens out in the end. Uh, one place that hasn't done so well with the media exposure, of course, due to the Spanish team staying there in Palmerston North. Right, so yeah, ESPN sports reporter with, intriguingly, Samuel Marsden. Is, his is name. he for so, real? A great figure from New Zealand history, so very interesting. <laughs> uh, he just noted in passing the Spain squad was leaving their base in Palmy earlier than planned because, in his report, boredom set in amongst the players uh, and their families with a lack of, of things to do had taken a toll. And this, of course, was immediately seized on by New Zealand media and, and social media, um, you know, who know that there's a, a bit of value in history and, um, you know, having a dig at Palmerston North not being uh, the most intriguing of met- metropolitan locations uh, around the country. I remember... Um John Cleese said something similar many years ago. <laughs> they named the town dump after him and that. But uh, yeah, the, the, the mayor had to do a lot of uh, overtime in the media doing interviews defending his city and yes. even offered to take them out, I think, to take out the entire Spain squad, which would have been a bit expensive, but I think they'd gone out by then. But some journalists, you know, leapt to the, the Palmy's defence. So uh, stuff travel writer Brooke Sabin wrote an article, Sorry Spain, Palmerston Authors, Anything But Boring. But I don't know, things he listed all like country walks and... You know the country fair tea rooms and Pahangana. I I don't think that would really cater for a you know highly tuned sports team wanting to unwind. But uh, former stuff journalist Michelle Duff really went for it uh, in a piece called "In Faint Praise of Palmerston North." She said, as someone who grew up Palmerston North adjacent, I think she's from Fielding. Uh, she said, I, I feel uniquely qualified. She said, the mayor of Palmy failed in his laundry list of compelling attractions. She said, no one gives a rat's whisker about the alleged 5,000 roses in the Victoria Esplanade Gardens or that it's got a premier miniature railway, which is actually pretty good, I reckon, for the kids. She said, if you have small children or gardeners, you'll like it. But in Madrid, no doubt you can find somewhere that has about 5,001 flowers or more in an actual functioning human-sized railway rather than the uh, under-threat capital connection that goes once a day to Wellington. So Mm. there you go. And how did she puff up Palmy as a place to stay? Well, she wasn't all that that much more um, more in, enthusiastic in a way. She she nominated Palmerston North's premier BP on the corner of Fitzherbert and Tauau. Well, yeah, but it does actually have uh, it does actually have history because my partner's from Palmy, and I heard her family reminisce about the Blue Moon Dairy that once sat on that oh. site. But again, I'm thinking, using Michelle's logic, if you're from Madrid or Sevilla or something, I'm sure you can get. Refreshing desserts of comparable quality, not too far from the main drag of, of the city. Yeah, yeah. So, where we go from here? Um, well, I'd just like to point something out, if I may, Mark, that um, Michelle Duff from Fielding would not have made an error that I think Hayden made uh, last time you had him on. Uh, yes. On mid- in fact, time before last that you had him on Midweek Media Watch, because uh, he was talking to you in an interview, uh, actually drawing attention to something I'd done wrong on Media Watch, accidentally yes. editing, and you remember that, don't I you? I do, you he doubled drew up. attention to that. Yeah, but then just before that, Hayden yeah. made a bit of a blue himself when he was talking to you about the rationale for funding, uh, public funding of journalism. Okay. That's why you have initiatives like Open Justice, where you send people to courts and fielding or something, which might not get covered, or the Local Democracy Reporting Scheme, where you send people to councils. So, yeah, so what was wrong with that? Well, he wasn't wrong. It was a fair point to make about the journalism. But, look, there is no district court in fielding. Um, <laughs> the district court building, Mark, was closed in 2012. That's on Kim Bolton Street, as I'm sure a lot of people know. So all court business is taken care of in 
Palmerston North. Well, there's but another there, attraction. Yeah, well, look, in fielding, there's a squash court. There's the Raceway Court <laughs> Motel. There is indeed a, a branch of Carpet Court, uh, but there's no district court. So, yeah, Hayden got that wrong. So I'm pointing out my error. I think it's only fair and reasonable that I point out that uh, he, he he didn't quite fact-check uh, so his comments there. Did Spain sort of get... Uh, Palmerston back on, back on side? Not quite. I mean, the ESPN Samuel Marsden did say, oh dear, I seem to have caused an international incident. He <laughs> says, I did have reliable sources for that, but a spokesperson for the Spanish side said, we've been absolutely happy in Palmerston North. Uh, it said, we've enjoyed our stay. And in the end, she said, uh, we will never forget our days in Palmerston North. But I think, Mark, there's a couple of ways you can interpret never forget our days there. <laughs> yes, that's right.